The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I've got this sort of, you know, quiet campaign that I want to get philosophy back on the streets where it belongs and to have a philosopher on every street corner so that, you know, we all have a Socrates or a Confucius or a Buddha in our lives. That was Bethany Hughes talking about her new TV series on great philosophers. Poor unfortunate would be lunatic would be locked inside and lowered below the, the water and then brought back up and revived, and again, a sort of shock treatment. And that was Andrew Skull, on one of the methods once used to cure insanity. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fifth podcast of July 2015. 
I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Next Wednesday, on the 5th of August, a new series begins on BBC4 entitled Genius of the Ancient World. Presented by the historian and broadcaster Bethany Hughes, it profiles three of the greatest thinkers of antiquity, the Buddha, Confucius and Socrates. Three men who all lived at around the same time and whose legacies are still hugely important today. I spoke to Bethany recently about the series and I began by asking her why she had picked out these three philosophers for the series. I've spent 10 years or so writing about the philosopher Socrates, the Greek philosopher. So I feel that I know him very well. I've, I've lived with him for a decade. Um, and he seemed to me such an extraordinary character, this big thinker whose ideas have impacted on the civilizations of both the East and the West. But what really struck me when I was doing the Socrates research was that we often seem to forget he's just a real ordinary man. You know, he lived and died. He was flawed. He had problems problems in his life. And his philosophy is also very practical. It's very much about helping people in the day to day. Um, so I kind of had a sense that, that these philosophers needed to be brought down from the kind of lofty heights of the sky and back onto the streets in a way where they belong. Um, so having done all this Socrates work, um, I looked at what other people were thinking at the same time. And there is this extraordinary coincidence that the Buddha and Confucius and Socrates all live and die within around about 100 years of one another. Um, some people call this the axial age. You know, they talk about this kind of moment when the world changes. I'm actually more interested in looking at each of them as individuals and seeing what their philosophy can tell us today. And what has been fascinating doing that is finding out really what extraordinary um, comparisons there are between them and how even though they lived thousands of miles apart and as far as we know didn't have any direct contact with one another nor indeed you know communicated via messenger via kind of the equivalent of the pigeon post of the ancient world uh, they do have very uh, similar approaches to life and to the problems and delights of being human so it seemed to be a very interesting thing to put these three together Socrates from from Greece, the Buddha from the Indian subcontinent and Confucius from China and to try to understand this moment that changed the world. You said that you know they didn't meet each other or anything but do you think it is coincidence that they appeared at the same time or were there any say global trends that might have allowed for these three great thinkers arriving at the same sort of time? I don't think it is coincidence. I think there is a kind of quantum shift in civilization around this time. Um, if you look at what's happening for all three men in their own historical time, um, things are changing. All three lived through times of great flux and challenge. So they, they lived in difficult times. And something that you see emerging from this moment of change is the birth of cities, for instance. So not just little citadels, um, but real cities. And this means a lot of things. It means that people are suddenly being cut loose from their family or tribal ties, which have really dominated life for the millennia before. You get a new class, you get a merchant class who are moving and trading between these cities. And these are men 
who physically have money in their pockets, coined money, really starts to circulate in all three of these cultures, in the Chinese, the Indian subcontinent and the Eastern Mediterranean at this time. So you almost have the sense that you have these men who are economic actors who who have a kind of feeling that they have a bit more control over their own life and that there is potential to fulfil your human potential in the here and now. So you're not just living at the whim of the gods or of nature, but there's a chance that you can use your spirit and your mind and your ideas to impact on the world around you. So all three of them share that. So I think it is absolutely no coincidence that they come up with these big, bold, radical ideas at the time. Either they're responding to their age and or they are a product of it, I think. So it's a very, very exciting moment in human history. And you said that they shared some similarities in their their ideas. Could you give us some examples of some of the most pronounced ones? Yes, I mean, they're great. I've now become completely, uh, I'm, I'm a sort of adherent of these three, you know, I'm totally converted and they're kind of philosophically, much of what they say is now ruling my life. I just think they have the most brilliant advice uh, for us in the 21st century. So all of them say, look, you know, wealth isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the immoderate pursuit of wealth is bad. So you should never pursue wealth at the expense of wisdom, you know, and sitting here today with Greece collapsing around me, you just think, well, that wouldn't it be good if we all took a moment and thought, actually, has somebody down the line being pursuing wealth in in an immoderate way? Um, they're very exciting because they say that education is important, sharing ideas, communicating is vital. But what you should never do is just learn by rote. You should constantly interrogate and question the world around you. Uh, Socrates famously says, the unexamined life is not worth living for a man. Um, And that seems to me crucial as well, that you're not trying to completely tear up the rule book. You're you're not trying to create anarchy. You're not trying to destroy everything that's gone before. But you're also saying, actually, let's just have a look at this from another point of view. You know, is there a better way that we can understand how to live? So that seems to me, again, a kind of wonderfully uh, modern and empowering and invigorating way to approach uh, life. They all love wisdom. Uh, They talk about wisdom being beauty. um, And they also say that each and every one of us can literally be a philosopher. We can all be a lover of wisdom. Um, But I think the final thing, to be honest, that speaks to me uh, most powerfully, again, that they all absolutely support and nourish is the idea that none of us live in isolation. Uh, that it's not really that man is the measure of all things, but man's relationship with man. And that what we each need to do is to be as individually good as we possibly can be. And then there's a kind of natural logic that the world will be good. So they all say kind of look to yourself and that's how you can solve the problems of the universe. Um, And they do it. And this, you know, there's always a danger. This sounds a bit kind of hippie in 60s. What they all say is the mechanism for this is to have an ethical framework to your life and also to love. And I don't mean a kind of soppy romantic love or a kind of sexy erotic love. It's really a a love of life, a love of being human and a love of humanity around you. So Socrates, for instance, says, 
love is the one thing I understand. I have never known a time when I was not in love with somebody. Uh, The Buddha, in one of the earliest bits of writing we have of his, says, love without limit. And Confucius has this brilliant um, kind of notion to guide us, which is called ren or gen, depending how you transliterate it from from the Chinese characters, which sort of means compassion, a kind of human heartedness that you always have to think, am I acting in a way that is good for the rest of humanity? And I think it is pretty hard to to argue with those ideas. And, and as you say, these ideas are, are very much pertinent to our lives in the 21st century. How important were these thinkers actually in their own age to the people around them? Really interesting question. Uh, We know that they were very charismatic. All three of them seem to have this quality. People talk about, uh, you know, their followers being kind of desperate to spend time with them and hanging on their every word. And they all attract followers. That's what's very interesting. They have almost these kind of disciples who follow them around. And the fact that even though none of them wrote anything down in their own lifetime, as far as we know, or at least it hasn't survived, we're, we're pretty sure they didn't write anything down. The fact that we have their words and ideas and their life stories is because those that went after them loved them so much and were so inspired by them that they set their ideas um, and their narratives down. So we know that they had an impact on those immediately around them. But in a way, you could say that uh, certainly Confucius and Socrates failed in their quest to encourage people to live a good, a virtuous, a a soulful life. Um, Confucius dies very depressed and he says, you know, age 73, it's time for me to die. I failed in my task because I haven't persuaded the rulers of China to kind of follow this virtuous, gentlemanly role. Socrates famously is killed by the Athenian city-state. He goes on trial for speaking his mind freely. He's accused of corrupting the young, of pursuing his own divinities, of degrading the divinities of Athens, and he's put to trial. He's convicted, and he dies in a prison cell. It's Legally, it's not execution. It's actually state-sponsored suicide. So he is put to death for his ideas. And although the Buddha's ideas are carried on by the Sangha, um, and we have these stories that uh, when he was teaching, people were sort of thousands would would go over to Buddhism. Actually, it's not until 200 years or so after his death with the Emperor Ashoka that actually Buddhism really becomes a central part of that whole region of the world. So in a way, they all died unsuccessful And yet, isn't it extraordinary that 25 centuries on, they are still household names and we're still talking about them? Have they always been well known or were they were they like rediscovered, for example, was there a renaissance for these people? Uh, there was a more more of a renaissance for um, the Buddha. So the Buddha's ideas um, that were hugely, hugely impactful, important and widely disseminated right up until the 11th century AD. And then he has this kind of dark period where the, the 
Buddhist temples are closed down, Buddhist universities are burnt down. His ideas are really, really kind of suppressed and they don't have so much influence. Um, Socrates and Confucius are rather different, though. Really interestingly, um, pretty quickly after Socrates' death, the Athenians realise that they've made a mistake. Um, we're told that they erect a statue of him outside the city walls. Um, and Plato, of course, picks up his trail and, and creates the Platonic Socratic dialogues uh, that tell us so much about him and his approach to life. Um, and those are very, very popular throughout time in both the East and the West. And that's something we absolutely have to remember about Socrates in particular, that he's not a Western philosopher. He was hugely influential, him and Plato's ideas in um, Islamic culture, for instance. Um, Aflatones is the, is the kind of Arabic version of the word Plato. And there's loads of little kids all around today called Aflatones, loads of little Platos running around. Um, uh, Confucius, very interestingly, again, there's a kind of gap when his, it looks like his ideas are going to die. And then the emperors of China actually realise that it probably is worthwhile not just trying to rule with a fist of iron, but trying to rule virtuously, that this might have benefits. And so Confucian ideas have become an, a central part of Chinese civilization and culture. And because his notion was that everybody and actually all three of them say this, that this isn't just a kind of philosophy for the great and the good, for the educated. This is something that every single man and woman, indeed, um, should take part in. Then you find right across China, even the uneducated learning Confucian quotes and Confucian ideas. So you know that rather kind of hackneyed phrase when we say Confucius, he say. Well, Actually, there was a kind of thousand years of Chinese history where everybody was were, were speaking Confucius's ideas uh, kind of on every street corner. So um, it was something which was absolutely stitched into the kind of character of Chinese society. So that was very, very, it was very popular. It then, though, took on in, in China in particular... It took on, as with all of these ideas, again, they become corrupted, They become, people use them for their own ends. And it was then thought to be part of a more um, sterile, uh, suppressive, kind of top-down authoritarian rule. So very kind of convenient for those emperors to say, by the way, you have to be obedient, you have to respect your elders, you know, you have to respect those in the hierarchy above you. Um, and so with communism, uh, Confucius suddenly became a kind of enemy of the state um, and he was thought to represent the bad old days. Uh, his uh, ideas were, physically they were burnt, the, you know, the manuscripts were torn up. So we don't actually have that many uh, manuscripts uh, talking about Confucius from that period. His gravestone was toppled. Um, those the, the gravestones of other Confucian scholars were destroyed. And I've been to that cemetery making this series, and it's, it's, it's incredibly moving, actually, looking at what happens when a very rigid form of an ideology uh, becomes an enemy of ideas. But but he's now having a resurgence, Confucius. There are Confucius Institutes all around the world, uh, sponsored by the Chinese state. And uh, there are lots of Confucian schools. <laughs> so we go and we have a lovely time in China going and seeing these great kids. Very funny. You know, ordinary teenage boys and girls just sitting and learning 25th century old uh, philosophies and ideas, the 
teenage boys dressed in these sort of Confucian cloaks and with these slightly daft Confucian hats on. It was very funny walking into that um, classroom because there they were all reciting this kind of beautiful ancient uh, poetry and philosophy. And there was a distinct smell of sweaty trainers. (laughs) I thought, you know, that's a room full of boys anywhere in the world. They might be wearing hats and quoting old philosophy, but you can still, still smell the teenage boy in there. But actually... They're all very proud of of Confucius and um, he has this brilliant, the kind of golden rule of Confucius is basically our do as you would be done by. Uh, actually in the original it's 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 kind of inverted and it's do not do to others what you do not wish to happen to yourself um, but that seems to me again a kind of just brilliantly simple totem for for life that we should always remember we should act in the world as we want the world to be and that genuinely there are 3,000 Confucian schools in China and these kids really seem to be you know inspired and, and motivated by spending time with those Confucian ideas is. You, you talked about how Confucius in particular, how he connected with other ideologies. What impact did the rise of the great monotheistic religions have on the ideas of these three? Well, it's very interesting because monotheism is rising at the same time that these these three are flourishing. If you look at what, what's happening in Judaism, uh, you know, that's happening almost at exactly the, the parallel time with all three. Um, and again, Christianity, if you look at uh, Socrates, for instance, a lot of his ideas people think are really prefiguring what you end up hearing in Christianity. Um, Socrates is very clear, for instance, that punishment should not be about revenge, you know, whereas this was totally the norm um, in the ancient world, the idea is that you punish people in order to have revenge on them. He says, no, 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 we... Punishment should really be about educating your soul so that you don't make the same mistake another time uh, in the future, which is immensely progressive. So... There's a kind of interesting crossover with a lot of monotheistic ideas. And so all three of them, although they, they're obviously pagan uh, philosophers, so they can't become officially part of the canon, the very fact that they are preserved tells us that those monotheistic cultures could see the value in what they were writing. And there's this whole movement of Neoplatonic thoughts, uh, which is has a kind of crossover with Christianity when Plato's words are kind of quoted and studied over um, by the early medieval and then the Renaissance scholars. So they're almost, they talked so much about being good and using our time on earth to change things that they kind of interleave rather nicely with monotheism so they're not left out completely in the cold. One thing that I think is really interesting is that in, in many other fields we've had you know a lot of progress like technology and science and industry but yet with philosophy it still seems that nobody really has come and superseded these people. Why, why do you think we haven't necessarily progressed in terms of philosophy? What a, what a good thought. I'd say it's because the genius of these men is that they don't set out to completely change the world. They're kind of radicals who don't want a revolution in a way. What they do is they recognise the world for what it is 
And that means they recognise us as a species for what we are. And we are still the same species now as we were 25 centuries ago. So in many ways, almost without exception, their ideas are as applicable now as they were 25 centuries ago. So I think in a way, we don't necessarily, you know, they got there, <laughs> they, they got there 25 centuries ago. We don't need to improve. We need to do as they did, to question, to interrogate, to kind of ask questions of, of their philosophies. But we don't need to kind of completely eradicate them or leave them behind just as a kind of historical artefact. Um, what I do think, though, and I think we do this at our peril, is that we're very keen on asking the what and the how, but not the why about our lives. Um, I've sat on so many committees, kind of funding committees and educational committees and city committees and arts committees. And you think you desperately need a philosopher around the table, actually, where there is somebody saying, oh, this is all very well, all very interesting. The detail's really important. But where is the good in this? What is going to be what's what's going to be the outcome that will actually benefit humanity from what we're talking about? Um, so I've got this sort of you know quiet campaign that I want to get philosophy back on the streets where it belongs and to have a philosopher on every street corner so that you know we all have a Socrates or a Confucius or a Buddha in our lives. Just one last question, Bethany. If if somebody um, after watching your your programs would like to know more about these these philosophers, is there any particular books of writings of theirs you'd recommend they read? Definitely go straight to the source. So go to to the Confucian Analects, which were written down and collated only about a hundred years after his death. Uh, go to Plato's Dialogues. They're just hilarious. They're brilliantly, mischievously written. And go to the Buddhist Pali canons, which are, again, the kind of first, earliest versions of what he's writing down. Um, the Open University is sponsoring this uh, series, and they've got a fantastic website with all sorts of materials as well. So if you go to the Open University and just click on the links, kind of, the, we'll make sure those are all available whenever you watch the programme or, or look online. Um, then they're going to have a whole series of, of, uh, books and recommended reading and courses that you can do. So, so it's only the beginning of the learning journey. This is, is it. It just just starts here. That was Bethany Hughes. Genius of the Ancient World begins next Wednesday, the fifth of August, on BBC Four at nine pm, and the first episode will tell the story of the Buddha. And now we have a short advertisement break. From ancient Rome to the Tudor court, revolutionary Paris to the Second World War, discover the best historical fiction and non-fiction at H for History. Visit us today for exclusive author features, first chapter previews, podcasts and audio excerpts, book trailers, giveaways and much more. Sign up now to receive our regular newsletter at www.hforhistory.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. Scientists believe they have identified the remains of four men who were among the early leaders of Virginia's Jamestown settlement. The bodies were exhumed in November 2013 in the church where Pocahontas married Captain John Rolfe in 1614, BBC News reports. After two years of detective work, researchers have concluded that the badly preserved bones belonged to important figures who lived in Jamestown between 1607 and 1610, when the colony almost collapsed amid food shortages, disease and Indian attacks. Jamestown was the first successful British colony that gave rise to modern-day America. Perhaps the most important of the four individuals identified is Captain Gabriel Archer, who led some of the first expeditions up the James River seeking gold and silver. In other news, a paw print made by a cat in Roman times has been discovered on a roof tile in Gloucester. The 2,000-year-old tile was dug up in Barclay Street in 1969, but it was only recently that the paw print was found by an archaeologist at Gloucester City Museum, who was examining thousands of fragments of Roman roof tiles. According to BBC News, the cat is thought to have snuck across wet tiles that were drying in the sun in about AD 100. While boot prints and dog paw prints have been found on tiles from Roman Gloucester before, cat prints are said to be very rare. Meanwhile, a 98-year-old veteran of the Second World War Arctic convoys has finally been awarded a medal for his heroism. George Morris was 21 when he sailed on what Winston Churchill called, quote, the worst journey in the world, the Mirror reports. More than 3,000 British and Allied sailors died when their ships were torpedoed by U-boats, sunk by German battleships or bombed by Nazi planes as they carried vital aid to the Soviet Union from 1941 to 1945. But their efforts were not honoured with medals when peace came, because the Soviet wartime ally had become a Cold War enemy. The Arctic Star was created only two years ago following a long campaign, and now, 70 years after the conflict, George Morris has received his medal. Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekends that take place in York and Malmesbury from the 25th to the 27th of September and the 15th to 18th of October. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekends that take place in York and Malmesbury 
from the 25th to the 27th of September and the 15th to 18th of October, respectively. We have a great range of speakers. That includes Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Alison Weir, Tom Holland and Helen Castor. Tickets are on sale now and you can get hold of them and find out more details at historyweekend.com. And if you're not able to make it up to York for our weekend there, then you can also catch a number of historians, including Simon Sharma and Tracy Borman, at the Radio Times Festival, which takes place on the 24th to 27th of September at Hampton Court Palace. You can find out more details and purchase tickets at radiotimesfestival.com. And I should mention that the festival, like the magazine, is run by Immediate Media, the company which also publishes BBC History magazine. Our second interview this month is with Professor Andrew Skull, author of a recently published book that explores changing attitudes to mental health over the last 3,000 years, from the Bible to the so-called madhouses of the 19th century. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Professor Skull to find out more. Firstly, um, the, the best thing to start off with is to, is to ascertain what your understanding of the term madness is. is. I mean, it's not really a term we see used very much these days. Yes. Uh, so the title of my book is uh, Madness in Civilization, and it provides a cultural history of insanity from the very earliest times, uh, from, from the Bible on to the present. Uh, and in choosing the word madness, uh, I had... I spent quite a bit of time thinking about that issue because it's become almost a taboo word these days, whereas for the great bulk of the historical arc that I'm trying to talk about, it was the term everybody used, whether they be physicians or uh, divines or ordinary people. Uh, madness was what they called it. Uh, in the course of the 19th century, uh, that gradually came to be a term that was inappropriate, uh, was not used by the professionals who once upon a time had themselves been called mad doctors and who now wanted to be called something else. And there was quite a dispute in the 19th century about what that should be in the English-speaking world. They didn't like the term psychiatrist, which was a German invention. And it wasn't until the very late 19th or early 20th century that uh, uh, alienist or asylum superintendent gradually began to be replaced with the term we use today, namely psychiatrist. So madness is a controversial term to use in the 21st century, yet oddly enough, it's also the term that patients who reject modern psychiatry, the people who call themselves psychiatric survivors sometimes, have appropriated for themselves, just as, for example, other uh, previously stigmatized groups sometimes proudly use the term that stigmatized them once upon a time. Um, so madness is the historically appropriate term for most of the period I'm talking about. The, the book covers a huge breadth of history, um, sort of 3,000 years. Going right back to the beginning, how, how were people seen in the ancient world, you know, people who were deemed uh, insane? Well, as we can see, uh, in the Bible, which is an interesting look back into a rather ancient tribal society, uh, madness could sometimes acquire quite positive meanings, and it was often unclear what meanings to attach 
two people who seem to think, to behave, to see, to hear things that the rest of us occupying what we assume is a common sense world simply don't share. So it was possible for people sometimes to be seen as channeling God, to be talking to God, to be prophets. Uh, but those same people might, under other circumstances, be seen as deranged. Uh, and madness could very often be seen, as we see with Saul, the first king of the Jews, as we see, for example, with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who takes the Jews off to captivity in Babylon. Those are figures we see being made mad by Yahweh, by, uh, by a jealous God, who tried to teach them a lesson uh, when they behaved in ways he didn't approve of. So that's one form of belief that was very common, this idea of either uh, madness as an affliction from God or as the result of the intervention of the devil, some sort of possession, or as the result of spells being cast, of witchcraft. And that has a long, convoluted history right down into the 18th century. There, there's a kind of larger set of meanings which to some extent coexist rather uneasily and we can see that stretching down into the early modern period even in medieval times we have uh, much of madness interpreted through a religious lens uh, but gradually physicians begin to assert that at least some madness has uh, a bodily cause and then there's a question of where to draw the lines uh, Priests assert that, some, that uh, madness is, is divinely or devilishly uh, brought about. Um, uh, doctors try to proclaim a, a different approach. And both sides for a time agree that there are cases of madness that belong in the religious sphere and other cases that belong in the medical sphere. It's only over an extended period of time, of course, that the, the uh, medical beliefs tend to triumph and these alternative meanings come to seem culturally much less uh, acceptable and believable. Obviously, you've done a, a tremendous amount of research that's gone into the book. Um, you, some of the treatments that you, you discuss um, as sort of these cures or ways of curing madness, um, some of them are, are quite bizarre. Some of them sort of seem almost like, more like punishments um, than, than ways to cure. What are the kind of the more unusual cases and treatments that, that you've come across? You often wonder whether the, the treatment is madder than the patients when you look at these things. Uh, and uh, for a long time, um, exorcism, uh, religious kinds of treatments of one sort and another were very common. Uh, the medical treatments, such as they were for much of history, in the Western world at least, invoked the same kinds of things that we use to treat physical illness, just as uh, Hippocratic and Galenic doctors, those who used humoral approaches, thought that the best way was to bleed and to purge and to vomit. So those things were used for madness. Uh, in the 18th century, we, as the Industrial Revolution arises and people become technologically more inventive, we see some quite extraordinary things. Um, Erasmus Darwin, Charles's grandfather, who's a very prominent physician in, in the Midlands, uh, revived something the, the Romans had used, swinging as a remedy. And he devises, although he doesn't build it himself, these swinging chairs where you could twirl people around at, at rapid speeds, uh, sometimes reverse directions or put them through a kind of loop-de-loop. -loop. 
And in the process, they would vomit, they would evacuate their bowels, they'd pee, they'd uh, lose consciousness. Uh, they were frightened. Uh, and the idea was that this treatment operated on both the body and the psyche simultaneously to kind of shock the man back to sanity. There was an elaborate dr near drowning device developed in this period, often called the Chinese temple, which looked a bit like an elevator uh, with a, a, a kind of um, iron cage that was uh, um, built over a pond and the poor unfortunate would be lunatic would be locked inside and lowered below the, the water and then brought back up and revived. And again, a sort of shock treatment. Um, if we think of that as, oh, well, that's the superstitions of the 18th century, and we move uh, to the 20th century, we can see uh, treatments like putting people into a coma by injecting them with insulin uh, and keeping them in a coma for an extended period and then reviving them with a shot of glucose. Uh, insulin coma therapy was introduced in the 30s and didn't die out till sometime in the 50s and some places even the 60s. It was used on uh, the subject of uh, Sylvia Nass's book, A Beautiful Mind, uh, John Nash, who as you probably know, won a Nobel Prize in mathematics. Uh, we used uh, brain surgery, uh, the infliction of damage on the frontal lobes of the human brain uh, called leucotomy in, in Europe or lobotomy here in America. Uh, and uh, the idea that we would slice the brain um, in some crude fashion and thereby cure madness now seems to us quite bizarre but it won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1949. Um, so there, and perhaps a, an, another 20th century example, the only one of these uh, extraordinary treatments that persists into the present is uh, ECT, originally known as electroshock therapy and electroconvulsive therapy. Now the convulsions are controlled with muscle relaxants, so they don't even surface so, so obviously. Uh, but that's a treatment that, we have no clue why it works, uh, but uh, many patients and doctors swear by it as a, a, a measure to treat um, depression. There are, it's fair to say as well, other patients and doctors who swear at it. Uh, but it done, nonetheless does survive as a reputable treatment in many circles today. And I suspect in a few centuries it will look rather bizarre, rather like those drowning devices I spoke of a few minutes ago. Just sort of going, going back to the 19th century, it, it, it tends to be, when you, when you think about madness and history, you tend to sort of focus on the lunatic asylum, places like Bedlam. Um, you know, what sort of role and impact have they had um, on, on this, this history? Well, you speak of Bedlam. Bedlam has a very, very old history. It was one of a number of medieval hospitals that emerged in that time. Uh, and the root of hospital and hospitality are the same, and that should cue us in. The earliest hospitals were religious rather than medical institutions. They took in travelers and pilgrims as well as uh, people who were physically ill, and in the case of Bedlam, increasingly mentally ill. And the history of Bedlam dates back uh, over 750 years now. It's uh, obviously become almost synonymous with uh, the asylum in the English-speaking world. Uh, but the real age of the asylum is, as you said when you uh, asked me this question, the real age of the asylum emerges in the 19th century. And all across 
Europe and North America. That's the period when the mad are scooped up and put into these institutions. And when the asylum is first born in the first three or four decades of that century, it's associated with very utopian claims about its uh, status, about what it can accomplish. The, the asylum itself is seen as a therapeutic device, as the place where madness can go to be cured via a kind of manipulation of the environment and the sort of psychosocial reality that the mental patient experiences. So the expectation when the first asylums are built are that they will in fact uh, cure mad men and women in very large numbers. Uh, And initially they seem to be relatively effective. Uh, Over time, that initial Uh, effect dies away, and increasingly the asylum comes to assume a very dark identity, uh, a place where once you're admitted, you're never going to be released. It was never entirely accurate, but as chronic patients accumulated in the 19th century, it was the image of mental illness that, uh, that began to be very widespread once again. And it was associated with Uh, the rise of extremely negative views about the origins of madness, seeing it as an example of evolution run in reverse, as it were, uh, degeneration to some some savage or even pre-human state. And in the 20th century, in the hands of the Nazis, uh, that led to uh, some terrible things being done. Uh, If you see the mentally ill as hopelessly biologically inferior, as uh, a diff- almost a different species, as impossible to cure, as even people you don't want to cure because they'll go out and breed and produce yet more defectives. Uh, the, the danger is very, very much that you'll see the mad as nothing but a burden and as people who perhaps should be eliminated. And that's exactly what happened in Germany. They originally started um, sterilizing people and then moved to killing them in the hundreds of thousands. And it was, in fact, that program that was called T4 in Nazi Germany that uh, uh, developed the very techniques and even the, the trained manpower, if that's the term we can use in this awful context, that then was transferred to the death camps and used on Jews and other people the Nazis regarded as undesirable. So the, the mentally ill suffered a kind of holocaust in Germany before anybody else. I should say, though, that uh, this language um, of seeing the mentally ill as subhuman was widespread in Anglo-American society and in France and elsewhere in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, And the sterilizations, at least, Uh, were uh, adopted quite enthusiastically in parts of the United States, particularly in California, where I live. California was indeed the model for the Nazis' sterilization law. So uh, we should uh, be aware that um, it it was a close-run thing, even in the democracies, as to whether the mentally ill might not have suffered uh, an even more dreadful fate than they often did. Um, So asylums began in the early 19th century as quite small institutions modeled on a sort of family or uh, small community 
uh, approach to managing the mentally ill. As the century wore on, they grew quite enormous. Uh, and some of them began to contain two, three, four, five, even 10,000 patients. Uh, the largest such asylum uh, that I'm aware of uh, out on Long Island uh, once contained almost 30,000 patients. So these were like towns almost. They had their own sources of gas and when electric light came in, electricity, their own water supply, their own fire department, their own um, security force. Uh, people lived there from admission very often to the grave. Uh, and the doctors and the attendants who uh, dealt with these patients also lived on the grounds and in many ways were almost as incarcerated as it were as the, as the patients were. So really a huge physical presence. And what's remarkable, of course, is um, in from the mid-20th century on, uh, their uh, populations began to decline, at first rather slowly, but by the 70s and 80s quite rapidly. And as they declined, many of these institutions were closed. Uh, and nowadays, they've largely vanished. They've either faded away and, and rotted and been demolished, or in some um, remarkable cases, they've been transformed into some other use. And usually when that happens, their origins as asylums are heavily disguised or whitewashed out of history. So right now, there's a development in North London called Princess Park Manor, named after Princess Di, but that once was Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum. Uh, and the developer didn't allude to that. He said, here's this wonderful Victorian building that's the result of a comp an architectural competition between the best architects of the time. What he didn't tell you is what the architects were competing to build. Um, women haven't traditionally come out too well from sort of um, treatments of mental health and, and the way they've been seen through history. Um, what, you know, why was that, do you think? Why have women sort of been associated with, with mental health problems? Uh, well, uh, there's a, you know, obviously in important ways, uh, this is connected up with um, masculine power and ma masculine uh, interpretations of um, the differences between men and women. Uh, to some degree, this gets um, bound up with diagnoses like hysteria, uh, a name which has its roots in the, in the Greek term for womb. And obviously, if you regard the womb as the source of the trouble, um, us guys don't have one, so luckily we're spared that. Um, it's a complicated kind of subject, this connection of madness and gender. Uh, it's absolutely the case that women were tended to be seen as uh, possessed of smaller brains, as being less rational, uh, more emotional uh, than uh, their male counterparts. And that obviously had its effects both in theorizing about madness and to some degree in the development of often some quite horrific treatments that were visited uh, on women and not, not for the most part on men. So uh, in the 19th century, for example, there was a, a great deal of experimentation from the 1850s onwards with sexual surgery directed at women. Uh, and that had only a very small counterpart uh, among their, their male colleagues. Uh, on the other hand, what's rather bizarre about uh, the way in which these male doctors 
tended to develop alternative theories about why women and men went mad and even different treatments is that if you look at the actual numbers in asylums, uh, the male and female populations are about equal. So in fact, women who were seriously mentally ill didn't outnumber men, and yet these misogynist male doctors found it necessary to come up with different theories and different treatments uh, for male and female patients. It is also the case as we move forward into the 20th century, that if you look back at those somatic treatments I, I talked about earlier, um, lobotomies were disproportionately visited on female patients. Um, so too was and is ECT. Uh, some people suggest that's because women are more prone to depression than men. Uh, but that also is a source of controversy. Why is it that diagnoses of mental illness vary to some degree along gender lines. Uh, men are more prone to being uh, diagnosed with personality disorders than, than women, for example. So uh, this is a very, very fraught and complicated subject. Um, if we stray away from the physical into uh, the more psychological interpretations of mental illness, if you look at the work of Freud, there too you see, first of all, that most of his most famous patients, the hysterics that he began to treat in the 1890s were women. People like Anna O and Dora uh, were uh, exemplars of the kinds of patients that he, he wrote about. And in his theorizing, obviously, where, where he places uh, questions of um, the libido of sexual energy at the, and, and uh, sexual trauma at the se uh, center of his theorizing, uh, to some degree, this is a gendered kind of theory, and Freud confessed himself to be extremely puzzled. He said at one point, what is it that women want? And he clearly didn't know. Uh, and his theories um, often seem to us now to be reflections of this um, male bias that we've, we've talked about in, in, in other contexts. That was Professor Andrew Skull of the University of California. His book, Madness in Civilization, A Cultural History of Insanity, is on sale now, published by Thames and Hudson in the UK and Princeton in the US. And Andrew will be speaking on the history of insanity at the Edinburgh International Book Festival on the 18th of August. You can find out more about that at edbookfest.co.uk. Now, regular listeners or readers will know that we're running an ongoing series called Our First World War that charts the history of the conflict through the voices of those who were there. We've now come to July 1915, and here, in an interview with the Imperial War Museum, is Sergeant Jack Dorgan describing how he wrote letters home for other soldiers from the trenches. I mean, we had a fella in our company who couldn't write, Billy Bacon, Private Billy Bacon. He couldn't write. And of course, he couldn't read. Now, then, when I found out, I took on the job of writing letters. But I wrote home to his girlfriend, at home he had a girlfriend, Bill, he was a big fella, oh, big fella, he must have been six foot one or two, big, what, made, 
Right. A simple type of fella. Nice to write home. Nice to write home as if it was him writing. What happened after I got wounded, I don't know. <laughs> the letters home would stop, you see. Would you read the letters from the girl? Oh, I, I do, the letters from the girl. Oh, yes. Our father was a, was a pub, was a, a publican. He had a pub, his girlfriend, in the, in the village of Choppenden, where when I passed after the war, I, I often thought of calling in, but I never did. I should have, because he died of consumption later, you know, when consumption was prevailing after the war. But he, uh, I passed the pub, or our father was the pub owner. often thought of inquiring about Billy Bacon. What about your own writing home? At home? What, what, what about you writing home? Who oh, did you write to? I, well, oh, yes, I used to. Well, I wrote, I wrote a postcard every day. A field card, they called them field cards. And one side, on one side of a postcard, you'd put the address on. The other side was a, a list of printed words, say, I, have, I am well, I am not well, I am in hospital, I am not in, and you cross out knots and so on. And uh, I have been wounded, or I have not been wounded, you cross out what applied. And I have received your parcel. I have not received your parcel. I have received your letter. I have not received your letter. And you crossed out what you didn't apply, you know. That was the postcard. And you'd send that home? I sent one every day because I had an ample supply and I used to give I used to dish them out, you see. Who did you send it to? You see, my, you see, my job being free, I was a suitable NCO to do that. You see, ordinary, ordinary sergeants and corporals, they were stationary. They would be in one part of the trench the whole time when they were in the trenches. Me, I travelled anywhere, you see. And it, it was in the daylight hours in the trenches when fellas had most time to write home. That was Jack Dorgan. You can continue to follow Our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. And speaking of the magazine, our August issue is currently on sale. Inside this month's issue, you'll find articles on Hiroshima, the murder of Thomas Beckett, Tudor jousting and many other topics. And as with last month's issue, we're also providing an audio version, which is included in the iPad and iPhone editions and can also be downloaded for free from the website historyextra.com forward slash August Audio. And just before we go, I'd like to remind you about a new app that we've just launched. It's called History Extra Weekly and is your indispensable guide to the week in history, including some of the best content from the History Extra website. It's free to download and is currently available on the iPad and iPhone. Search for History Extra in the App Store to give it a try. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about the war in the Pacific, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? 
where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>